what we're looking at in a text is a library of voices and a library of voices who are in tension with each other. And therefore, the argument of being alive in politics and in religion and in the human condition is about realizing that there is a broad field with lots of space. Hey, everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to the show. Oh, man. I have mixed feelings because today we are wrapping up our series called For the Love of Faith Shakers. As we bring this series to an end this week, I just want to say it has been so inspiring and eye-opening to see what each of our guests have been doing as they have been people of faith in non-traditional spaces, using these unique platforms, being thoughtful, not just in their messaging, because that sounds like a commodification, but really just in their way of being right? The way that they see God and faith and people. And it's just been, I don't know, I have felt inspired and I have felt relieved and I have felt refreshed. So much of what my guests have brought to us in this series resonate with me. I'm so grateful we've gotten to highlight them and introduce you to some of them in some cases. And this week, you guys, You're going to see this. First of all, let me look. I have now gone 20 minutes over time recording this episode because my guest is so special. I was 100% under his spell today. Under his spell. You're going to be too. Like, I just couldn't quit talking to him. And I just wanted to hear him talk forever. I don't even know what to say. I'm so happy you're listening and I want you to listen all the way to the end. And you're going to see what I mean. We're in an interesting space today. We are in a unique space where faith and art in particular are being combined to great effect. And we are in, among other things, in poetry. And it really doesn't matter what you think about poetry. It doesn't, we're not discussing structure. And no matter how you feel about that genre, it is a vital and relevant form of art in our world and has been since four ever. Like poetry has existed in our world for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands put forth by creators whose works are still quoted and referred to today. I mean, and then there's modern poets like, you know, like Maya Angelou have used this art form to push thoughts and ideas and justice forward by some like trick providing solace and comfort to the reader at the same exact time that she's challenging us, right? Poetry has always been able to do this. It is not an antiquated way of communicating with our world. What are our favorite songs, frankly, if not poetry? And talk about relevant. Let's talk about our amazing young poet, Amanda Gorman, who at 22 years old, absolutely floored us, sent us through the roof at the presidential inauguration, right? Poetry matters. It's always mattered and it still matters. And of course we know, hello, faith people, scripture is full of poetry. Just look at the Psalms, look at the Proverbs, look at, there's poetic language in the prophets. Like this has always been a powerful tool to talk about faith for the people of the time to try to figure out God, how to be on this earth. What does it mean to be a neighbor? What does it mean to feel forsaken? What does it mean to suffer? Language, words, and poetry have always been a tool deeply embedded inside any sort of faith search, right? So this week, we have a poet with us this week. He happens to also be a theologian. 
And he's going to walk us through not just the powerful ways that poetry can bring healing and hope and reconciliation, but you're just going to have to listen because it was way more than that. I, I feel like I had an hour of spiritual formation today. That's how I feel. I feel like I was with a spiritual director who was walking me personally through a bunch of stuff that I've been sifting through in my brain on what does it mean to be a peacemaker and, and what does it mean to be a leader in that? And what are the rhythms of it? And so today we have Padre Gotuma. He is a poet. He's a theologian. His work centers around language, power, conflict, politics, religion. He has a BA of divinity from the Pontifical College of Maynooth. And so if these don't sound like words that you know about in the U.S., that is because he is Irish. He's currently working towards a Ph.D. in theology from the University of Glasgow in Scotland. For several years, he was the leader of Corrymeela Community, which we talk about, Ireland's oldest organization focused on religious reconciliation. He's a not only a recurring guest on Krista Tippett's podcast, who was also in this series, but he is their resident theologian since 2019. Nothing I love more than sitting across from somebody who is smart, who is interesting, who is curious. He is all of those things. Like I was just captivated with our conversation, captivated with him. And you're going to be too. This is a really great interview. This is a really great leader. I I have a feeling a lot of you don't know him and I'm so excited to introduce him to you. I want you to partake in his work. I want you to see what he's doing in the world. I want you to sit under his leadership because it's pretty powerful in a gentle way. And so ah, I just couldn't be more pleased to share my conversation with the just smart, wonderful, interesting Padre Gotuma. Padraig, welcome to the For the Love podcast. I was just telling you that so many people who I love and respect and admire love you. And (laughs) so I am just delighted to have you here. Thank you for saying yes to this. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me, Jen. I'm really glad to be with you. I filled in my listeners a little bit about you, kind of a little bit about who you are. But for, for my community who may be new to you, today. I wonder if you could just high level for us a little about who you are, where you are, and generally what it is you do. And then we'll sort of get down into (laughs) the granular stuff. All right. I'll try to do the high level as you ask for. So I am Padraig Otuma. I'm from Ireland and normally I live there, but currently I'm living in New York City. I'm on a writing residency at Columbia University. I work with On Being, presenting Poetry Unbound. I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about that. But I suppose there's three main areas of my life. And for me, I see them all as the same. I'm a poet and poetry, reading it and writing it has been, it's the lifeblood for me. And then I, I've trained as a, as a theologian as well. And um, the language and the texts about religion are, are hugely important to me. And then because neither poetry nor theology uh, pays bills, I trained as a conflict mediator, and so I've worked for most of the last 20 years in, in conflict mediation. And so for me, those three things are all about language. You know, poetry, religion, and conflict are, are all about language. So they seem like three very different careers, but for me, they're all part of the same thing. 
oh, listen, you don't have to convince me that if you are going to do some deep work in theology and religion, you need to learn how to manage conflict. Like, I feel like anybody who's a Christian should also be a a conflict specialist. And so... (laughs) I mean, I think everybody is a conflict specialist in in particular ways. We all have to live with conflict. And conflict isn't always bad, of course. Conflict can be the place from which art comes. Conflict can be the place within which brilliant friendships thrive and kind of experience the electricity of themselves. So conflict isn't something to that needs to be that always needs to be resolved because sometimes you want to amplify conflict because it's really fruitful and energetic and creative. But it's when it gets violent or destructive or fruitless that it does. So I think everybody knows that line in themselves. You know, it can be really difficult to know how to negotiate it, but we all negotiate it over and over again with yourself, with your siblings, with your spouse or children or neighbors or colleagues or whoever's on the bus next to you. You know, we're always, all of us are conflict specialists. I appreciate you saying that because I think this is mostly my own personal internal wiring, but maybe also a little bit just the generation I was raised in, but it's always, I've had this feeling intrinsically for most of my adult life that conflict is bad, that conflict means, oh, we're disconnecting. So one of us has done something bad or wrong, or this, the, just the presence of conflict itself is signaling that something is deeply like not okay. And we need to just, so rather than have this real healthy adult path through it in a fruitful way, my adult instinct has been to avoid it, like just shut the drawer on it. I've learned that sometimes our bonds of connection are actually stronger on the other side of healthy conflict. Of course. And it doesn't mean disconnection at all. Sometimes it means connection. Yeah, totally. And so real quick, before we sort of get into some of these, these spaces that you work in, how are you finding New York and your residency <laughs> and Columbia. This is different from your homeland. It is. How long have you been there and how is your experience going? So I am six months into a seven month residency. So I have one month left and I love New York and I love working. I'm working at the Conflict Resolution Center as poet in residence there. I'm putting, I'm writing a book about conflict and poetry. So yeah, I love it. It's great. Great thing to be here. I do miss I do miss green. Uh, occasionally, I make my way up to Central Park, which is lovely. But I miss just there's hares and foxes who live in our backyard at home, so I miss them. Of course, you do. I used to think before that I would love to to live for years and years and years in New York City, and now I realize that it's days and days and days. I think it's, <laughs> I think three three months is the optimal amount, and by oh. after that stage. Oh, you're bursting all of our bubbles. I have such a romantic notion of living in New York City. I've had it for years. I'm in the city a lot for both fun and work. And every time I'm like, oh, I could. Oh, I could just thrive here. I don't know if I could. I don't know if I could. I know. I mean, you will probably hear Second Avenue. That's where I'm living. We'll probably hear Second Avenue as a conversation partner while we're talking. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) It's present. While we're speaking of our conversation partners, what you will hear while you're talking to me is the train. That's our conversation okay. partner because I live in a little old timey old town, half a block from railroad tracks. Oh, lovely! So yes, it's very nostalgic sound. It's like from the yesteryear. Okay, yeah, I like it. Your work centers almost entirely around the power of language. That's the center of the wheel, and you have a lot of spokes off of it. I have a million questions. I want to start from the time that you were drawn into words, drawn into language and into the faith community. Like sometimes in some spaces, these 
these things are feel divorced from one another. The beauty of it, the power of it, and it's more perfunctory, it's more educational, it's more informational. And so I'd kind of like you to go back and talk about this is the kind of kid I was. This is what moved me. And this is why I began moving into these, this kind of niche space that is lovely and beautiful. And I don't think widely understood. Yeah. Well, I, I think my mother was very sick when I was younger. So for about three years, there was a woman who looked after me for a few hours a day. And this would not have been normal in the 70s. I'm 46. I was born in 1975. And so this would not have been a normal thing. It, it wasn't a childminding situation, really. It was a relieving situation for healthcare. And she spoke no English. She only spoke Irish, what Americans would often call Gaelic, but we call Irish. And so my dad said he heard her once try to say a sentence in English. And she had words, of course, but she had no capacity to put together a full sentence in English. And so for about three years, all I heard for three or four hours a day from her was Irish. So I think that's where my love of language started. Is I mean, when I got to school, teachers would sometimes ask me to talk in Irish. And I thought I, I thought it was because there was something wrong with me. I mean, I now know that they were kind of intrigued by this five-year-old who sounded like a 60-year-old six, a woman from West Kerry. Um, <laughs> totally. But I, yeah, I, I didn't understand that at the time. I thought there was something, I thought I was saying something wrong or something kind of humorous that was, they, I thought they were joking or taking the piss. But I think that's where it all began for me. And I, from an early age, was always intrigued by language. If I ever met anybody who spoke another language, I always wanted to learn something, a greeting or a thank you or anything at all. I didn't care. And I suppose then when it came to religion, I mean, religion, certainly in the 70s and 80s in the Ireland I grew up in, religion was everywhere. It was everything. I mean, it was so ingrained in the in the national culture of Ireland, which isn't to say everybody was religious, but it is to say that from a systemic point of view, Catholicism especially was absolutely present in it. And at the same time, too, country in the first century of emerging out of colonialism and a country in the wake and the shadow of, of the first century of partition between the Republic and the North. So all of these things are present there, religion, politics, language, bilingualism, cross-culturalism from two very nearby cultures, but nonetheless, whose power disparity was enormously different. So all of these things were present in my life. And I was probably annoyingly interested in that from an early stage. I always wanted to ask questions and I was I was curious. I was interested in religion. I was fascinated by the stories. I begged my parents for a Bible when I was nine and they got me a child's Bible, which I still have. And the first thing the first thing I did was to look into it to see if there was a picture of the devil. <laughs> that was my <laughs> in that way I was a very normal. Your curiosity child. was leaning a little dark. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, of course. Yes. But I think I mean, of course that children were children are interested in the the macabre or yeah, so that's that's where my interests went. So in, in all those ways, I, I feel like I was, on the one hand, very normal. And on the other hand, I had some specific interests, which have continued to be specific interests, particularly about language. And being bilingual from an early age, I think, did that. And so many people are bilingual from an early age because there's a language at home and a language where they're living or they've moved across a border or a border has moved across them. And therefore, they have to become fluent in other languages. So, How soon was it? that both you and the people around you began to understand that you had something special, that you had a gift. But poetry is such a special gift. It is, it's not just 
an ability. It's the way that your mind works. It's the way that you see the world. It is the way that you understand truth and hope and struggle and life. And then ultimately theology, like this is not your gift in the world is I think rare and special. Did your teachers start noticing early? Like, wait a minute, this kid is, this kid's got something. I mean, poetry is so much part of the Irish education curriculum that it was just taken for granted that everybody had to be able to. So I was never the top, top student. I, I was just ordinary, I think. And I I don't think anybody saw me as special. What I knew was that I always needed to turn to poetry. And from the age of 11, I started to write it. My sister once had been looking through my room. I'm not sure why she was looking through my room. I have three <laughs> sisters and two brothers. The oh, oldest mercy. one. On, yeah, the oldest one, Anya, said to me once, I found this poem you wrote. And she said, it's pretty good. And she said, I've edited it a bit. And so she edited it. <laughs> she edited it. I took the liberties yeah, I know. <laughs> to take a right to yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. And I actually, I mean, I just got a, I just got a the edits of a book back the other day from an editor that's coming out in the autumn time. And I said to the editor, I love being edited. I mean, because it, and so my older sister kind of, I think, gave me a gift from that age. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, I, like I wrote poetry right throughout my 20s, never was published. I, I I mean, I did not come from a family or an economic strata that thought of the possibility of, of working in poetry ever as a as a, a way to make money. You know, my parents were both very poor when they left when they left school each at 14. And so everything in our family for all six of us was get a job in science, get a job in science, get a job in science. And so anything else felt like a luxury that wasn't even part of the possibilities. So, but I needed poetry the whole way through my 20s. And I kind of accidentally got published then in my 30s. So there was never any situation where anybody said, oh, this is a gift. For me, it was, this is a survival and I need it. And it's the only way through. Mm. How does one get accidentally published in poetry? (laughs) (laughs) I know. Um, Somebody asked me, a fellow I know was putting together a book of urban theology. It was a thing, I suppose, in the early 2000s, looking at a theology of the city. And he, he was from Ireland and he said to me, we knew each other through mutual friends. And he said to me, would I be interested in putting a poem to go in between each chapter in this book? I was delighted. So I gave him a few. You know, I'd begun reading poems at open mic events and doing things like that. Anyway, I was at a festival and I read some poems. And then that particular book that I had, nine or ten poems in, and I'd I'd submitted an essay to it too. That particular book sold out at the festival. And I went into the bookshop and the person who was running the bookshop said to me, do you have a book of your own work? And I said, no, God mighty, I'm far too intimidated by publishers to even know where to begin. And she gave me her card, Christine Smith is her name, and she said, you have a book deal now. I'm the commissioning editor at Canterbury Press. And she said, here's my number. Oh, I have goosebumps. Golly, that is not how it normally goes. I owe her such a debt of gratitude. Yeah, Because, I mean, it wasn't that it was easy. It was that the whole thing was a struggle for me. And I was so intimidated by it. And I didn't feel like I had the right contacts or the right the right degrees or the right, you know, I I really felt outside of it, but yet I knew that poetry was a lifeblood for me. So yeah, I owe her such a debt. How did you find that first project? Because now it's different. You, before you're writing for yourself, you're writing without a deadline, you're writing without an editor, you're writing maybe without an audience or a big one at that. So I'm curious how you found that transition from amateur 
to published. How was that experience? I suppose I'm always curious in terms of thinking about how to write from the place of hunger, how to write from the place of need, and how to be how to be a student at the desk of writing always, and to be to have a posture of learning. And that, for me, has continued to be really important, how to preserve the voice of, of vulnerability. I think that is something that does keep the writing as a, as a project that's to be unfolded. I wrote a memoir in the shelter a few years back, a few years now, and I had a complete crisis halfway through and just stopped writing for a while, much to the consternation of my editor, Catherine. They don't love that. They, they don't, don't love, love it. that. Mm-hmm. And I was so, and the, the crisis, it was, it was existential because I was saying, what is the need for another book filled with words on a shelf? Like, what is the need for that? And what do I have to say? And I was reading a book about writing by the brilliant writer, Adam Phillips. And he has this great line in it where he says, ultimately, when people are reading, they're not only reading what's written. They're also reading what they're hearing in themselves as they're in conversation with what they're reading. And he said, that's what the point of writing is, is in the certain, in first hand to put something down so that people can hear themselves in conversation with themselves. And they would forget what you've written, but they'll remember their experience. And it it changed it because I was looking for an intellectual justification. And on the one hand, what it said to me was, keep writing. And on the other hand, what it said is, ultimately, you are just the opportunity for people to listen to themselves. And therefore, it, it, it also, it put the question of writing on a different shelf for me, where I didn't think I, I had to be the one to say things to people. Rather, it was to say, well, if I'm writing and people wish to read it, I'm very grateful. And then I'm really curious as to what do they hear? Because that's always their own conversation with themselves. Absolutely. Uh, That's so lovely. And that's been my experience also as a writer. And I'm curious if your reader feedback confirmed that, that they, they come to you and say, this is how this affected me. This is how this, I relate to this. This is my version of this thing you said. Like, is that, has that been how your reader response has been? Oh, yeah. I mean, regularly people will come up and say something like, you know, I liked your poem or I liked the book. And I I used to think it would be arrogant to say, tell me about why. But now I always say that because within a sentence, they're telling me something about themselves, something that's that's important and a place where they were or an experience or a time in their life when they were reading something. And to think how moving that they chose to carry a book that I wrote around with them or that that book seemed to come to them during a time. And they used that book for listening to themselves. And I, I am so moved every time people say that. I'm sure you are too. People, I mean, all of us, I think, bring ourselves to language in a way where we are looking for lifeboats, little rafts to help us in difficult times. And I am in debt to so many writers who have affected my life. And so if, if there's one person in the world who says to me, oh, that was a small help, I'm, I'm full of gratitude. Mm. I mean, when I think about the books, that I've read that people, they, they, they're put their labor on the page. It was their story. It was their perspective, but what those books became for me were lanterns on my path that I could see and follow. And they, they moved me, they moved me down. They moved me down the road and they mattered to my thoughts, to my understanding of God, to how I want to be in the world, to what matters. I mean, and, and to that point, I'm with you. Debt of gratitude can never be repaid, but also it is the alchemy 
of what their words created in me that I walked up to the table with, and now I'm different for it. So, right. What a wonderful way to think of ourselves as writers, that we're almost a conduit. Take us kind of out of the importance of the thing, but that the words become this conduit for people's growth, for their curiosity, for their healing, whatever the thing is. Now that, that is exciting work to be a part of with less pressure on it. Yeah. And I'm part of the recipient of that too, in the hope that it's because it's, to write something is to be in conversation with the project of writing, of language. I mean, I don't understand what I write. I think I try and I, I apply craft and form and learning. And, you know, you, I work as hard as I can. But there's always a way within which writing knows more about you than you know about it. And it reveals itself back to you at different times. We've been talking a little bit about conflict with Patrick here. Conflict can be a huge source of stress, and stress can manifest in all kinds of ways, including physical symptoms like headaches and digestive issues, as well as physical habits like doom scrolling and sleeping too little or too much even. In a world where we'll face conflict, we will, and where we will feel like we need to do more all the time, I want to remind you to give yourself permission to take a step back, to take care of you and maybe add some therapy into the mix. BetterHelp Online Therapy can be an asset here to help your wellness and navigate the things that feel stressful in your life. I know my own online therapy appointments have been a game changer for me. BetterHelp's customized therapy approach offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't even have to see anyone on camera if that feels hard. It's also much more affordable than in-person therapy, so give it a try and see if online therapy can't help lower your stress too. This podcast is sponsored by Better help. And for the love podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash for the love. That's B E T T E R H E L P.com slash for the love. You know my love for female-founded and female-run companies, and Osea is one of those. They've been making clean, vegan, and cruelty-free skincare since 1996, yet they're always innovating on effective new products. I started putting Osea in rotation recently, and I am impressed. In addition to their award-winning cleansers and serums and face moisturizers, they have an incredible line of body products. These are so great with summer staring us in the face where our skin is going to be showing more and more. The Osea body oil is exactly what you want going into the warmer months because it literally makes your skin like glowy and luminous. I also love their body butter, which is a newer product. It's proven to moisturize your skin for up to 72 hours. That one is transformative. It has a lush, hydrating, non-sticky texture that makes your skin look amazing. So find your new skincare favorites at oseamalibu.com and get a special discount just for our listeners. You can get 10% off your first order with promo code for the love at OSEA Malibu.com. Also, you'll get free samples with every order and orders over $50 get free shipping. You're going to want it all guys. Go to OSEA Malibu.com and use the code for the love. Okay. In 2019, you were named the resident theologian for On Being. I had Krista on the show in this oh, series did. with you. This. Yes. She's so special. She's amazing. She's so, there's no one like her. I've never known anyone like her. She's so special in this world. 
So you're named resident theologian for the show, and you sort of focus on bringing art and theology into public life. I love the ethos of it. Can you talk about the whole thing, the experience? I'd like to also hear personally from you how sharing your work in this way has in turn allowed your personal faith to maybe grow or evolve or change. I'd like to hear how that personally has impacted you. And then also how, how does talking about, you know, faith and religion in poetry, like, open the door for people who might otherwise not have found it. It it is a lovely paved path you are creating for some learners and thinkers and listeners and humans who these are the stones they need to step on to move forward. So I just literally put six things in that question. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) Just good luck. Just pick one and go. Well, I think, first of all, the question about religion and language is it's a huge question. And I remember I remember the first time I listened to Krista on the radio, it was 2003. And I haven't missed a show. It's gone through a couple of iterations of names, but I haven't missed a show since then. Because I, I heard her on the radio, a podcast, and I thought, who is this that's asking these questions? So informed by theology, but not trying to recruit. I mean, I'm Catholic, and so I'd always really appreciated the Catholic intellectual tradition, but I had part of the ecumenical charismatic world since the 90s, really, and I was on my way out of it. And so much of that was always about convincing and converting. And I had... I've given up on that a long time ago because I'm utterly uninterested because it's it, it's a commodification of human encounter is to think that it is about convincing and converting somebody into your way of using language about God. And so as a result of that, I suppose I was looking for language that what I now would say is that I was looking for language that could see the theological enterprise as curiosity. And that's what I found in Krista's intellectual work as well as her encounter work and her broadcasting work. And that, for me, has shaped my life, really, has been to think about theology as a starting point for a conversation. I have no interest in whether somebody does or doesn't believe in God. I have no interest in whether we agree. That doesn't interest me at all. I hope we don't. I don't agree with myself, so I don't really <laughs> agree with anybody else. Same. Yeah. So I'm. I'm. what I'm really interested in is saying that religion is literature. And like to just take the book of Genesis, for instance, you know, the first letter of the first word of the first sentence of the first chapter of the first book is B. It should be A, really, according to all literary convention. And what that does is it says, perhaps, that the the character of the nature of sibling rivalry between A and B is going to be important for the rest of that text. And it is over and over again. What you find in the book of Genesis is sibling rivalry between pairs of sisters, between pairs of brothers. And therefore, I suppose what interests me is to see that religion and poetry and literature are all trying to figure out what does it mean to be human? And one of the failures of imagination that had really irritated me when I was more involved in charismatic religion was that it saw itself as separate from the world rather than as part of it. And I am never interested in recruiting anybody into religion, but I tell you the absolute truth. I'm really interested in recruiting religious people to the world. 
not by saying leave your religion behind, but by creating a path where you realize actually the texts, the texts that I love and have been shaped by are texts of the world because they wonder about what it means to be alive. They wonder about power. They wonder about trauma and impact. They wonder about meaning and the place of art and the the possibility of change and the place of the stranger in the community and the place of the community to the stranger. And these are world texts And so for me, I'm absolutely all about a pathway, but it's a pathway from the religious imagination into the world, not by leaving your religion behind, but but being aware that religion has always been part of asking the questions about what it means to be alive. And it is a relatively recent thing that religion has often been commodified into, will you or won't you get into heaven? That's utterly, I, I have no interest in that really. I have deep interest in, do the words we use help us to make some kind of sense of the world. And when there's no sense to be made, do the words we use help give our grief voice? Like I think of the prophet Jeremiah, who turns to the God character in that text and says, you are to me a deceiving stream, and I curse the day when I was born. My God, look at the poetry and the power and the truth in that. That's what I'm interested in, in the possibility of poetry and religion and conversation with each other. So the work with on being really is is knowing muscularly and confidently that theology has been asking questions about what it means to be alive for a very long time. And theology has been poorly served by some very strident public voices about religion in the world. And so it is to say on being is just one part of many, many organizations who know that theology has an intellectual contribution to the world, not by trying to convert or convince anybody, but really by saying the questions that are at the heart of religion are the questions that are at the heart of democracy, of politics, of power. Who are we with each other? How can we be towards each other, something that might be more than just the market economy? How can flourishing have something there? How can the way I understand the the purpose of humanity influence the way that I act as a citizen? These questions are are at the heart of theology and they're at the heart of the work at On Being as many other organizations too. I mean, when I tell you, I could listen to you talk about this for the rest of the day. I am so drawn. I'm so drawn to this. This is the posture and the thrill and the through line of humanity that drew me also out of the convert convince space. And I feel like I got faith back. Like I, I got back a God that felt worth caring about or believing in even. And I got to be a citizen of the world without being its gatekeeper or it's represented. I don't know, but that was so exhausting. It it always wore to me like an ill-fitting coat. Even when I didn't have the capacity to understand a different way of being in the world, that was the only template I'd ever been handed. And even then I was like, this can't be right. Like this doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel like good fruit. This feels bad. And so what you're saying right now is such a lovely way to be open-handed toward our own suffering, toward the suffering of our neighbors, toward who God is and what he's up to in the world and what he's always been up to in the world, what religion has always been up to in the world. And then of course, I have to ask you, having been a, there's no way to say this, you being a super fan of On Being from 2003, having not missed an episode, dear Lord, 
what was it like coming into the fold as a resident theologian? I mean, that's kind of a big deal for you. It had to have felt like a big deal. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, you're very calm. You were very centered and measured, but you had to have been like, oh, it's Krista. Yeah. Well, I'd gotten to know Krista over the years. They started off a, a Tumblr blog years ago, uh, speakingoffaith.tumblr.com <laughs> or something like that. I can't remember yeah. what it was. And so I'd comment on that every now and then. They had an Irish guest on years and years ago. And one of the producers had said, oh, we're looking for some music for this show. Anybody got any ideas? And so I commented, of course, you know. So there'd been a little bit of back and forth. And then I have been working in conflict resolution and community dialogue for a long time. So I'd often use excerpts from the show to say, look at what was done here in terms of reframing a conversation. And so as a result of that, I'd sometimes send a message to a producer who I might have had a little bit of, you know, engagement with online or something like that. And then Krista very kindly wrote an endorsement for a book. And then I led a staff retreat. So there had been slow, you know, we we were, we had been getting to know each other. And then when I, I led Corimila, which is Ireland's oldest peace organization. I want to talk so, about that next. Yeah. Yeah. I invited on being to come. So they all came and we had meals and whiskey. So, yeah. So oh, they well, that's it. Once you've had meals and whiskey, you're family. Yeah, like. yeah exactly. Yeah. And so <laughs> as a result of that, I suppose the the opportunity to work with on being was is, it was and remains a thrill. It's a it's a great project to work with, and it's a great endeavor to be part of. So yeah, it is a it is a lovely thing to be part of the team. <laughs> Let's talk about Corey Mila. So for a few years, you were its leader. Is that fair to say? Yeah. 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 Can you talk to us about what that community? was and is, and why that work was so important to you and what even like all of us can learn from that. Those of us who are here in America, wherever we are and whatever community we're embedded in, whatever race and ethnicity and sexuality, nationality we're born into, this is work that transcends. I'd love to hear you talk about it a little bit. Sure. Carmilla was set up in 1965 by Ray Davey, who was a Presbyterian minister. He died in his 90s. 2005. And the ongoing presence of Britain, Brit- Britishness in Ireland has had a history of, of hundreds of years. <laughs> and there was a famine during that time, an unnecessary famine. There, had, there was partition, there was slaughter, there was genocide hundreds of years ago. Uh, there, were, there was terrorism then in the 20th century. So there has been a terrible history about what, what the engagement in Ireland of Britishness in Ireland Britishness and Irishness has been, and people from so many points of view have been, have suffered. And so Ray Davey was really interested in finding a way where people could talk to each other, not to agree with each other, but really to disagree with each other in fruitful ways. And so this was in 1965. He he had been a chaplain in the university for a long time. And he's, he became aware of a piece of land on the very, very north coast of Ireland that was for sale that had an old house on it. Usable, a little bit rickety, but usable. And so he reached out to lots of contacts that he'd known through the years of being a chaplain. And they purchased this house and this piece of land. And the land in, in Ireland, a couple of fields together will always have a name. And the name of these few fields is called Corimila. And initially somebody said, oh, it means Hill of Harmony. And they set it up as a, as a way within which people could come for weekends, for summer weeks, for Easter weeks, to engage with each other, to engage in politics and religion, to argue with each other, to, and to hold deep theological and political disagreement 
in the presence of temporary community. And it is that it is that powerful tension that's really important, as well as hold deep devotion and deep doubt. Some people got involved saying, I'm not that interested in being a devout member of religion, but I'm really interested in politics and religion, you know, here in the north of Ireland. And so since 1965 till today, Cormiel has worked with, I don't know, eight to 10,000 people a year on programs of dialogue, of communication in schools. Schools come there, visiting universities come all across Ireland, as well as from, you know, England, Scotland and Wales and further afield as well, working at looking at this overlap between how it is that power and religion and land and history and sovereignty engage with each other in places where there's conflicted borders. And so I had come on kind of as a freelance poet in residence at Corrymeela from 2005 and had worked for about nine years on and off as a freelancer, sitting in on group discussions and being present as a group facilitator, sometimes going conflict mediation, but also being present as a poet through those projects. And then to, from 2014 to 2019, I led Corrymeela. There's an executive director as well. There's a, there's, you know, there's a, a few different leadership roles. It's an extraordinary thing. It's a Carmila is a, an organization, but it's also a community in the sense of that there's a couple of hundred people, mostly from the north of Ireland, who are in their own lives, their jobs, you know, in their own homes, they're studying or working or looking for work or retired. But they, we make a commitment every year to be a member of the community, almost like for Catholics and Anglicans would understand a third order where people would say, oh, I'm a third order Franciscan. It's not like they're joining a monastery, but they, they have a commitment of prayer every day, etc. So I'm a member of the Caramilla community. I, I'm not leading it anymore, but I'm still a member and, and always will be. And, and the work continues. It does. And I'm... That work continues everywhere. This idea is powerful to me, this creating a space for it. The whole idea of, I guess, I don't know if the right word is reconciliation, because sometimes that has a connotation of meaning uh, agreement or unanimity or... Or predetermined outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't, I'm not quite sure what the, the word is, but this important work of coming together across disparate experiences, beliefs, ideologies, politics. It's so relevant. And I think about our experience over here in the United States right now, when I drop this down into a faith context, and I think about the issues that have absolutely plagued and sunk the church forever, race in the church, gender in the church, sexuality in the church. It just feels like how can we all be in a room, you know, because at the center of so much of our conflict is human dignity. It's human worth. It's value. It's, these aren't just ideas where they're equal. One is very good people on both sides that, you know, and so this work is hard and I'd like to hear you speak into it as we stare down issues of identity and authority and inclusion in a space where we don't necessarily, it's not like, tell me, tell me why you're racist and let me see if I can understand. You know what I mean? Yeah. How, how would you say that? I, I don't even really know what my question is, except that this is your specialty. You are a conflict mediator. And so how, how do you suggest we begin to approach what feels like a divide too great to ever find a bridge 
Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, to, to try to step back and look at the landscape of the question of, of community where there's been prejudice and horror, there are a, a variety of ways to try to intervene. And I'm utterly uninterested in creating a hierarchy of those variety of ways. What's needed is that each of those can flourish and interact well. So groups like Coromila would, I suppose, be called encounter groups where in the context of Ireland, I don't know enough to know whether this is recommendable outside of Ireland or not. So I'm only speaking from the point of view of Ireland. In the context of Ireland, what has been necessary has been to have situations where community members and community members from different points of view, from different experiences of victimhood, etc., can meet each other in encounter. And that is a really important field in that area of conflict resolution, but it's not the only one. There's other groups that are looking at legacy, looking at the legacy of partition, looking at the legacy of history. There's other groups who will look particularly at policy. And then there's other groups that will look particularly at reparation and change. And then there's other groups that will look at the democratic process within the context of that. And then there's also overlaps between all of those. There's other groups that will look at educational change and educational policy. And I think in any situation around the world where you're looking at a society that has been terrorized by by war, by, by the legacy of the last 500 years of European expansion, what you're looking at is a situation where you are hoping that each of those fields and more can flourish and interact with each other. That's rather good. than saying, you're just doing encounter, you're not doing the real work of policy, or you're just doing policy, you're not doing the real work of encounter. We need them all. And so within the context of that, I suppose, as I look at the states, I see groups that are doing all of those and more that are, you know, raising voices, raising awareness, doing quiet, unbroadcasted work, doing policy change, doing educational change, looking at what would reparations look like, looking at what would a truth commission look like into the history of Indigenous experience in, in the United States, as well as Black experience in the United States, looking at all of those things. And each of those fields is really important. And sometimes what I hear in well-meaning people is that they think, well, I'm more of an encounter person and I'm more of a policy person. And the argument is, which one is better? Neither is. What we need is them all. And one of the things we we know is that when politicians who deeply disagree with each other can get in the room and manage somehow to have a fruitful engagement and a fruitful argument, that will be helped by the possibility of human encounter and by policy. And so what we are always looking for is to be fluent in a variety of those fields. And that, I think, is a helpful way to understand some of the work that we're always trying to do. And that often when people are arguing with each other, they're arguing because perhaps they aren't quite aware to go, actually, all of these components are important. And the question is, is which one are we focusing on for this meeting? Um, and it's not to demote the importance of the others. It is to say that, actually, this is what we're looking at particularly. But to say, there's another group that are doing this other work really well as well, and we really respect and admire their work. So much of the work of peace can be undone by the peace field being partitioned and segregated and fighting itself. And in that context, I think when people can realize to go, you know, legacy work and reparations work isn't holding me accountable for something that my ancestors did 400 years ago. But I do understand that time moves in different ways when it comes to history. And so I am benefiting from what was done 400 years ago. And suddenly you can go, oh, I understand what's happening. That, the, you know, you, all of these different parts of the, the peace encounter world and the peace engagement world can be understood in a way where 
we don't fight so much about the things we're fighting about, but we can be more more clear about what we are talking about. And therefore, within the context of that, have a place for rage, have a place for art, have a place for boring policy, have a place for human encounter, have a place for gestures. Each of these is important when working together. Have a place for curriculum change, etc. Finding a way where all of these things can can be in in community and connection with each other and intention with each other. Mm. I hope that's I love helpful. This. Oh, it's so helpful. I, I don't know if I've ever heard someone give such honor to all the disciplines of peace that we literally need them all. I, I'm so we happy do. someone is working on curriculum change while I work over here in storytelling. It's all necessary. Exactly. Candles are one of those things that make a huge difference. I have them in every single room. My favorite candles in the world are from Thistle Farms. Their healing collection includes a lemon lavender balance candle, a sweet orange and vanilla calm candle, and a grapefruit and mint focus candle. And so yes to all of that. I have been getting candles from Thistle Farms literally for years, not only because they're beautiful and they smell the best, but also because the company is an incredible nonprofit that provides housing and healing and employment for women survivors of trafficking and exploitation. Women live completely free, y'all, with custom health care and trauma therapy so they can focus on healing. While in Thistle Farms social enterprise program, women learn job and leadership skills by making candles and body products. The money from the sale of the products helps cover the cost of the program, while the women build up savings to restart their lives. The Thistle Farms cause is just so important, and their products are delightful. So see it all and find out more at thistlefarms.org. When you check out, enjoy a special 15% discount by using the code for the love. That's thistlefarms.org. Use code for the love. Let me ask you this in the encounter space on a more granular level. And of course, you've seen this tens of thousands of hours in your work. In the encounter space, when you are in a room of people with disparate experiences and perspectives, what is the biggest hurdle to having a fruitful discussion? And then if you could parlay that a little bit into your best counsel in terms of how do you get in your body and in your mind into a space that you can be a fruitful contributor, no matter how passionate and fiery you feel about the thing on the table. Like what's going to derail us and what's going to re-rail us? That's really what I'm asking. You know, the, the longer I've been in this, the more I'm open to being surprised by everything. <laughs> There's always homework to do, of course. And was it Studs Terkel, that great American interviewer? He was asked what the key to interviewing was. And he said, homework and humility. And I find that to be, I have found that a guidance to any kind of group work that I've, I've done for years, which is to do the homework. Who's there? What, what do I need to know? What experiences will be happening? How do I tell the story and how would they tell the story? And within the context of that, to plot the lines of power, to do the work in terms of group dynamic theory, all of those things. There's a lot of homework to be done. And in the room, to have the humility to notice what's actually happening rather than what I assume will happen because of what I think I know about what's happening. So like the best way to do all this work is to tell stories. So 
one time I had been asked to speak about forgiveness to a grouping of people. They were women from inner North Belfast, inner Belfast, and they had had very different experiences of, of politics in their lives, each from working class communities that had been derided in public, but one from a British Protestant working class community background, one from a Catholic Irish working class community background, each would hold each other responsible for all kinds of things. And so I was asked to speak about forgiveness and they had asked that. There was a, it was a community group that had asked for it. And I said, look, I like to use a story when I talk about forgiveness because forgiveness is abstract. And so I said, can I use a story about a man who had been, you know, his wife had been killed in a bomb and he had had public language about forgiveness that I really trust. I think he's brilliant. And they said, this is perfect. The community group leader said, this is the perfect story to use. So I went in and I had written that story out uh, just on a single page. I said, I'm going to pass this out. You're going to read. You can have all kinds of thoughts about forgiveness, but we're going to use this story as a template for discussing it practically. And as soon as I passed the sheet of paper with the story around, I knew something had gone wrong. Absolutely wrong, 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 wrong. And I'd done all the homework, but nothing had prepared me for this. Because somebody said, do you realize that the bomb that killed that poor man's wife, I was the first respondent on the scene. Oh, she wow. said, I pulled rubble off of other people's bodies. Wow. And, and my first response was to look at the community leader and go, what the hell? Like, what, what? I asked, was this the right story to use? And you said, it's perfect. And I felt, frankly, I, I felt a bit set up. And... At the same time, I knew really quickly that whatever I was feeling and whether that was incompetence or being set up, that was irrelevant now. What was relevant was happening in the room. And the, the bomber, there were two bombers, one of whom had been killed in the bomb because the bomb had gone off early and the other of whom had been imprisoned and then freed on amnesty in our in our peace treaty. And the bomber was a neighbor of somebody else in the room. Oh, gosh. Oh, so, wow. Layers. So it was layers and mm-hmm. layers. It was all there. And I said, I'm getting so much new information now. And I, first of all, want to say, I'm very sorry that that I didn't do the work to know that this would be the case. I wouldn't have done that. And I, I swallowed the blame I wanted to assign to the person who should have ordered me and then said, we have options. I can leave the room. You can talk yourselves. We can try to talk together. We can just take a break and you can have a discussion. We can do, there's all kinds of options. This has happened and I I wish I could undo it, but I can't. But we have options. And I I know that this is a room of people who have been meeting together for a year, uh, every second week. So I know that you have processes and I will honor whatever you decide. And they said, let's stay in the room and talk. And so that's what we did. We stayed in the room and talked. And it was raw and powerful and difficult. And for years afterwards, that group continued to meet and said that this was the experience that gelled them together, not because they agreed with each other at the end. They each still apportioned blame in different ways at the end. Some people blamed the British government. Some people blamed Irish terrorism, etc. People fundamentally disagreed and would vote in different ways. But the, the place of encounter was not a saccharine, oh, it's lovely, let's, let's hug and kiss and say, oh, we're all one group now, differences don't matter. They were saying differences do matter. And we are able to talk and argue about them in a room without recourse to violence. And that's the kind of leadership that they that they demonstrated. And that, I think, is that's that's a story that always I keep close to my heart, because I think if I think I know something about a group, am I correct? I'm probably not. 
for years, I mean, I, I suppose my conflict mediation has been in two areas. One area, which is about people dealing with the legacy of British-Irish conflict in the north of Ireland. And then the other area has been particularly looking at the experience of LGBT people in communities and societies that are heavily influenced by faith. I'm a gay man myself, so I don't come to this neutrally. And I'm uninterested in neutrality. I am interested in fairness and trustability. And so I regularly try to pay attention to what are the dynamics of power in a room. For whom is an idea or, or an opinion a concept? And for whom does it mean I don't feel safe anymore? And those are two very different things. And yes, they are. Does, does a grouping of people in a room know how to measure the impact of their, of their intention? So they might say, my intention is to be loving when I'm talking about this, loving God, loving you. So therefore, I'll, I'll speak about my concern about LGBT lives in public. And somebody else might go, actually, your, your loving intention is causing me to feel like I'm about to be fired. And so to help a group to measure that, I think a lot of people have love as their intention. That's fine. But I'm always interested in saying, let's put it to the test a little bit. That surely is a biblical imagination. Let's put your love to the test and think, would the person who was receiving your love name it as love or would they name it as something? And to look at the space between intention and impact and to have some courage to measure that. So those are things that I hold in mind going into a room. And in each of those, there are landmines. And the point is, is that in every room, there needs to be and there will be. And it isn't about doing the work to avoid them. It is about having the preparedness and the possibility to not be clumsy in creating them, but also when you encounter them to say, to speak with respect, to say, look at this, there's information that we need. What's the possibility for dealing with this information correctly? And who is leading in this context? Are there ways within which people of good intentions, but actually really damaging practices are leading something? Or is this being led in a way where people who have suffered the most will have trust in the process? So these are all of these are things that I think of when it comes to planning an encounter group. This is so good. That is so good. I'm glad this is your job. You are so good at that. Everything you just said is powerful. And we have the opportunity to practice that in our real lives and usually probably in a smaller scale, sometimes to, to a larger scale, but even one-on-one with a friendship across the table. And thank you for that. Thank you for everything that you just said. I'm going to go back and listen to that. A story, like some friends of mine go to a church that's pretty conservative And in the lead up to the referendum about equal marriage in Ireland a few years ago, at this church, the minister was saying, well, obviously, we all here will be voting against equal marriage. And the assumption was, and these friends of mine love their church and they and they don't just love it patronizingly. They love it truly and deeply. One of them put his hand up during the service, which isn't a regular thing to do, you know, (laughs) and said, look, He goes, I know I'm a minority in this church in the sense that I'll be voting yes to equal marriage. He said, I'm not trying to change other people's opinions here. But what I do want to say is simply to say, I celebrate the fact that I belong in a congregation where I know I can put my hand up and say, I disagree with this and we still will be part of the same parish. And that was really, really difficult for some members of the church to hear that because some members of the church were looking for a sense of group belonging that was based on the idea we all agree on this particular topic. And what my friend was doing very cleverly was to assure love and to say, actually, we don't all agree with each other and was also interrupting 
a certain liturgical practice of power, which is that the preacher gets to define who the we is. And actually, the preacher the preacher is the last person to do that, because typically the preacher is only there for seven years before moving on. The we, the we of a community is usually much longer than the jurisdiction of the preacher. And so within the context of this, I thought that was a really admirable thing to do. Powerful. And now some people would say, well, these friends of mine should have resigned from the parish or they should have protested. There's all kinds of models for trying to do an intervention. And again, similarly to how encounter and policy and education and change and democracy, similarly, there's not one way in intervention either in the sense of that we need some people who will be doubling over backwards in graciousness. We need other people who protest. We'll need other people who write the policy. We know that we need other people who will initiate the discussion. Each of those interventions are important. And where things fall apart is where those things seem to think there's only one way to do it. Everyone should protest. Everyone, sh- everyone should be really gracious. Everyone should be like this. Mm, it's so good. There was a conference years ago in Belfast about LGBT people in the life of the church. And the conference was called The Lepers Among us <laughs> so Ooh, wow yeah, i know poorly titled wow. yes. and so um, poorly branded poorly branded Ooh. although unfortunately it was accurate to its branding because that was the approach so i happened to know the organizer and i had engaged with the organizer in public and debated obviously from a very different point of view and challenged him enormously and i had invited him to a meal once when he insulted me in public at a big thing he had been horrible and i said I'd like to invite you to a meal to see if you speak to me around my own kitchen table, the way you've just spoken to me in public. And he didn't know what to do. Yeah, and he came to the meal with a bottle of cheap wine. And <laughs> then he said to me, and then he said to me, I'm running this conference. And if you can stick it for a day, I'll give you 15 minutes of rebuttal at the end. And I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. I wasn't sure it would be fruitful, but I'll give it a go. And outside the conference, there was a whole bunch of people who were protesting, rightfully so. And I had emailed the protesters in advance to say, I'm going in because I'm curious whether I can do anything in there, but we each need each other. So I kissed and hugged the protesters and they said to me, where our support is with you? And I said, my support is with you and went in knowing that there wasn't the sense of, my God, he's a traitor, or my God, they're doing that or whatever. And that, I think, is often what's needed in the context of people who are working for social change, is to recognize that there are different models and different practices. And what we need is to find the communication lines between those different styles, rather than thinking everybody needs to protest or everybody needs to do the gracious work. Actually, I am not convinced that graciousness always works. I will try it. It's often my first recourse, but I am not I am not loyal to it. If it doesn't work, screw it. I'll be out there protesting. Yes, yes. And there was probably someone likely in that scenario who was inside the room and close to the leaders with kind of a gentle rebuttal in their ears, but still in an insider. That that counts too. Some people change yeah. things from the inside. How did your rebuttal go? You have to please finish the story. You got 15 minutes. Oh, I, How did it go? I wiped the floor. With <laughs> <laughs> I believe you. Of course I did. I believe you. It was, the language was complete failure of language. LGBT people were being spoken about people as being incapable of love, people being in, we were only being categorized in the context of victims. We were being spoken about through people projecting their erotic fantasies onto us. And so it was easy to say at the end, I love poetry and you seem to allow no space for people who are LGBT. 
I was the highest scoring student in the Vatican College in particular aspects of my degree and to say, I love theology and you need to read the text more because the text is brilliant. You are demeaning the text in how you speak, never mind me. And so within the context of that, the encounter work of going inside that room was not about saying pretty words in public, trying to create a neutral, utterly flaccid common ground. It was about saying, I'm inside here. I've heard what you think your best words are. Now listen to mine. And so in the context of that, it was a good thing to say, I know that everybody in this room, there's about 100 people there, I know you are deeply committed to the truth. Listen to, listen to some. Mm. This is what our work is. Wow. Yeah. You're the guy for that job. That guy for a while. had given you the microphone for that last 15 minutes. Yeah. That. yeah. For a while, I'm the person for the job. But that's a really important thing to recognize is that even though that that is something that I've done for a long time, that that too shouldn't be an identity of mine because there are times when it's too much. Absolutely. That's a labor. When I invited that guy to my house, you know, he said to me when he got there for the meal, I had a friend with me because I would never be alone, you know, because I, I wanted the protection because I knew people can say oh this is what Patrick said to me the guy said will your partner be here and I said actually no my partner is delighted that I'll have conversations with people who come from your point of view but he never wants to meet you so he's left the house for the evening and that was an important piece of truth to say yes absolutely oh gosh I literally have so many other things I want to talk to you about and I'm so grateful for your not just your leadership here, but just kind of who and how you are in the world. I am, I feel like I've just been instructed and really like led and you've done some modeling for me in the last hour that is really powerful. And I'm, as you're talking, I'm dropping it into my context as a leader even. And anyway, thank you. Thank you for bringing this to bear, not just to my community, but to me today. I, I needed to hear some of the things you were saying. I want to wrap this up with you, Padraig, because this is a series where we have been really interested in talking to people of faith who are doing their work outside of traditional structures. And that's very interesting to me. We're not talking to pastors. You know, we're not talking to church planters or whatever. We're talking to Krista. We're talking to you. And so these are some questions that I'm asking everybody who is bringing their sort of work to bear in, in different spaces that aren't necessarily systemic religious structures. Here's one. And this is just top of your head. So you and I are the same age. I'm a year older than you. 1974. 74. <laughs> when you look back over your personal faith story, if you will, what would you point to, or if you even do, you're a, you're a process guy. So I don't even know if you'll have an answer for this, but if you said this was a thing that happened or a thing that I heard or a, a new way that I understood something or a decision that I made that caused a pretty big sea change for you in the life of your faith, where you went, this was a, this was a stake in the ground for me. Yeah. It happened accidentally for me. I had an exam to write in my undergrad. I, I studied theology and the exam posed the question about the prophets of exile or some of them, Ezekiel, Jeremiah and Isaiah, and said, what were their three different political views about the reestablishment of the city of Jerusalem? And I realized as I wrote it to go, these three guys would have hated each other. Like one is about 
The city is open. You know, the mountains and the hills will bow down. People will arrive. Other people were like, hey, build high walls. And, you know, and within the context of that, I thought, if you were to gather all the authors of the Bible from the Hebrew Bible and then the Christian texts, if you were to put them all in a field, I think they would hate each other at times. And they would not, they would not agree with each other on this word of God or the question genuinely they would and as a result of that I thought oh my god there's room for me so yes that's so good I have no interest in the question of heaven I've always found it an idolatrous imagination I am really interested in how we relate to each other with language and so I'm not interested in people belonging I'm not even interested in defining God because for me agnosticism saying I don't know that has been the thing that's held me into the possibility of language. So I know that I'm usually in the corner with the people who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, <laughs> time for this, a time for that. Will good come if you do good? We it. don't know. Probably not. Do good anyway. That's the corner I'm in. And that exam made me realize it's not like I aced the exam and, you know, got 100%. I did okay. But that exam made me realize that one of the major things that happened for me in studying theology was to realize that what we're looking at in a text is a library of voices and a library of voices who are in tension with each other. And therefore, the argument of being alive in politics and in religion and in the human condition is about realizing that there is a broad field with lots of space. Mm. I love that. I've learned that from some of my teachers in the last 10 years. And it's such a lovely reading of the text. You kind of said this earlier. We don't have a text problem. We have a reading of the text problem. And so what a wonderful way to be able to like take our vice grip off of the text and rather look at it in all its conflict and mystery. And it's wild in its breadth, just wild, just absolutely absurd. Like there is no through line of same, 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 same. And so to me, this is so exciting. It's so refreshing. And it opens up for me, the possibility of all things new. And what can I learn from it without judgment, without this sense of certainty but rather what's a better reading here. I want to ask you this too. This is the final question. I'm so grateful for your time. I see that we've gone over time. When I tell you, I feel like I'm under your spell. I am like, how do I get him back on here? I have more things I want to talk about. I will let you go because you have a life. (laughs) You're a resident of Columbia. You live in New York City on 2nd Street. You need to go. Last question. This is Barbara Brown Taylor's question, which I love. And it's, I have found so much meaning inside of it, but I would love for you to answer this however you want, Padraig, because you can give me a lovely poet's answer and I would welcome it. Or you can just give me like, I'm a New York City person who walks these streets answer. I don't care. Her question is, what is saving your life right now? Lovely. Uh, Well, first, it's lovely to invoke the magnificent Barbara Brown Taylor. She's such a a great person. I've so enjoyed reading her work and then meeting and talking with her. Same. She's a lantern holder for me, ahead of me. Uh I have two answers. First of which is, is this question of pay attention and paying attention to what's happening. My friend Marie will sometimes, when I'm on the phone with her, she'll say, what can you see right now? And it can be as simple as, there's trucks going out. There's a little bit of light coming through the clouds. I can see a single star breaking through. One day I was looking out my window and I saw three nuns on New York City city bikes 
<laughs> soaring down Second Avenue. It fits. Their their habits fl- <laughs> flying up behind them. I love it. And it was just uh. it and paying attention to what is to the to the human experience right in front of you. There is and there is consolation and desolation happening all the time. And I do find that one of the a spiritual practice is to pay attention to the events that are happening right in front of you and to see those things with all of their multiple layers of meaning. And so, yeah, that really helps. And the okay. other thing that helps me is Reese's peanut butter cups. Oh, I, nice. I love, we don't get them in Ireland. And I, so I, good? I, I can't imagine that there's anything good in them, but they are so good. No, no, it's all chemicals. It's chemicals <laughs> and sugar. It's not real. Okay, I do want to tell you this because I don't know if this is an American phenomena. I'm not sure. But have you had a s'more? You know what I'm saying when I say that, where you I, do your I marshmallow know. and the graham cracker and the chocolate. Okay. I think this might be American. I'm not apologies to the rest of the world if it isn't, but you know, we do this around campfires. And we do it with our graham crackers and we have our little square of Hershey's chocolate and then on goes the melty thing. Well, about five years ago, I was around a campfire with a new friend and I, with my eyes, I watched her get her graham cracker and put a Reese's peanut butter cup on the bottom and then her melty marshmallow. And I was like, I feel like I just started living just now. <laughs> like everything has been just a dress rehearsal until this day. Until this I didn't moment. know we could do that. And <laughs> I've never had one not like that since. Never. I must so, try that sometime. I need to be do. invited to a barbecue in America. I mean, yeah. you have one more month here and I feel like this needs to be priority. <laughs> I mean, please do finish your writing project, but also if you can do make that. this happen for yourself, you I'll will think fondly of me. You'll be like, Jen Hatmaker <laughs> told me that. Jen yeah, Hatmaker gave me this idea. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Last, can you please tell my listening community where's the best place to follow you, to find you, to find your work? So I've got a website. It's just my own name, padrigotuma.com. And it's same for Instagram, padrigotuma there. So that's a that's a good place. I, I typically put links up. But even more than that, I think, is if folks are interested in listening to Poetry Unbound, we're just about to start on April the 11th, the fifth season. And there's a, actually a book coming out from Poetry Unbound in the autumn time. So I would be thrilled if people would follow that along. Because the idea with Poetry Unbound is to take a single poem and to look at the world through the lens of that poem. It's just about 12 minutes long as a podcast. So it's about the length of a cup of coffee. That's the idea. Twice a week, nice and easy. So I'd be thrilled if people would follow along there how wonderful i count me in okay thank you so much hey thank you thanks for being here today thank you for your time my pleasure i'm so excited to introduce you to my community they're just going to love you so much and i just really value every word you said today and really appreciate the way that you are so that's very kind thank you thank you listen listen if you ever are in austin texas i have a fire pit on my property Oh, I'm Texas. That's where you are. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. if you're here, I'm in Texas will, next year. Listen, I Great. will personally okay. deliver to you the s'more with the Reese's Peanut Butter you. Cup. You come no, to I'll me come to yeah. when I tell you. I, I'm not joking around with you. So remember, Austin, Great. Jen, Fire Pit. We have it. Perfect. I have okay. it. Okay. Great. Thank you. I'm so pleased, so pleased to have a longer conversation with you Jen yeah Um, I've heard about you from other people that love you too so it's lovely to meet you okay until next time let's just say it like that thank you bye now bye
right, you guys, were you under his spell in the same way that I was? I think Patrick was hitting some ideas that I just, I'm in right now. And so everything about that to me was powerful and instructive and wise. And I mean, I'm telling you, I told you at the beginning of the show, I felt like I set, I felt like I just got an hour of spiritual direction from a spiritual director. So as mentioned, if you go over to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, I'm going to have this whole episode for you, but I'll also have show notes and then I'll have all the links to Podrick's stuff. This is a good one to share. Share this with the searchers, the seekers in your life. Share this with the people that you trust to have faith conversations with. And guys, anytime you share our shows, we are so grateful. When you put them on your social media accounts and you send links to your daughters and your moms and your sisters and your spouses and your pastors, that all is so meaningful to us. So thank you every time you trust us to talk meaningfully into anything at all in your world. And so anyway, whoa, today was good. Really good, really powerful for me. And I hope it was for you too. Guys, thank you for listening. Thank you for being an incredible podcast community. We're in our fourth year together and I never get tired of it. Never. I love this work. I love my guests and I love you. So on behalf of Laura and her podcast team and Amanda and I, thank you for being here and subscribing and rating and reviewing and sharing. You're the greatest. New series starting next week. Don't miss it. See you then.